morning, everybody. How you doing? Glad to be here today. Hey, let's just thank the Lord for an opportunity to be in God's house. All right, all right. Hey, let's get our Bibles open to Luke 15. And really, we are wrapping up our series for the summer on the parables today with one of the most beloved parables uh, that Jesus ever gave, one of the sweetest stories Jesus ever told, and that is the story of the prodigal son. William Shakespeare uh, used this story to motivate some of his writings and plays. Rembrandt used this story to motivate a, a beautiful portrait that he painted of the prodigal son. Uh, I believe it was Dickens that said, this was the greatest story ever told. So historically, this, this story is iconic, uh, but it is also very relevant and very uh, culturally uh, on our hearts uh, today. Because if you have a family and some, somebody kind of drifts away from the family and, and comes back, then someone will say, oh, well, the prodigal son has come home or the prodigal daughter has returned. But as you look at this story, you got to realize that Jesus never titled this story the story of the prodigal son. That's the title that we have put on it. Uh, the story is probably better titled the story of two sons because there are two sons in the story and Jesus intends for us to look not just at one son but at both sons. And Jesus in, in, intends for us to compare these sons and to identify with one of these two sons. And in that, there is a powerful message. Jesus in this message is rocking the world of the people that are listening. He is deconstructing people's view of who God is. Uh, he's deconstructing their view of themselves. They're, he's deconstructing their view of, of what it means to be right with God. And he's painting a picture that is powerful and, and life-changing. And if you get a hold of this story, it'll change you. If you really truly get a hold of this story, it won't just be a Hallmark movie kind of story. All right? It will be a life-changing story of who God is and who you are and how we are right with him. So I want us to get a hold of this story, uh, to go deeper into this story and to really hear the message that Jesus has for us today. Are you ready? Ready to get into it? All right, so have your Bible out. We're just going to kind of be walking through this story Really, this story can be broken down into two parts, just like a play. There's act one and act two. Act one could be titled, The Lost Younger Brother. Act two is entitled, The Lost Older Brother. All right? So let's look at the first act. The first act opens up, the curtain flies, and it starts off with a speech that the younger brother is giving to his father. And he basically says, Father, I want you to give me my inheritance now. I, I want you to give me what's mine, what belongs to me. And this is a shocking thing because this would never really happen in that culture uh, because obviously uh, in order for the inheritance to be distributed, the father would have to be dead, right? I mean, that's kind of the way it goes. You get your inheritance when your father passes and not before, but basically what the son was saying is this, hey, Father, I, I really uh, don't care about you. I just want your stuff. And this whole thing we got going on between us, this is really just a means to an end, and that is for me to get what is coming to me when you're dead. I really would prefer for you to be dead now so that I could have your wealth, but since you're not dead now, then the least you can do is divest 
your property and give me what belongs to me. That's what I'm after. That's what I want. Give it to me now. The younger son would have had claim to one-third of the property. Two-thirds went to the older brother who was really the leader of the whole family. And so one-third was a rightful inheritance of the younger brother, and that's what he was demanding. Give me, I don't care about you. I just want your stuff. Give it to me now. Now listen, um, I don't know how you'd feel if your uh, son came to you and said, look, I want you to divest your 401k. I want you to divest all your properties. I want you to sell the house. I want you to do all that and give me that. I don't, I, I want, I don't want to wait till you're dead. I want it now. I don't care about you. I just care about your son. That would be pretty hard to take, wouldn't it? I mean, probably a father at that time would run this kid out. At best, he would run this kid out and say, forget about inheritance for you and uh, redraft the will or maybe even take him out because he dishonored his father in such an egregious way. But this father doesn't do that. This father knows his son does not love him. He knows his son only cares about his stuff. He knows his son does not care about him. But yet he does an equally shocking thing. He he doesn't. I mean, if you just look at the story, look at what Jesus said. It says, uh, it says right here in, in verse 12, he says, he divided his property between them. Now, the word property there, circle that word in your Bible. The word property there is the word bios, which we get uh, the word uh, biology from. It means life. Literally, he divided his life among his sons. Why is that? Because the land was his life. I mean, the land was how you made a living. You farmed the land. You, you, you raised cattle and sheep on the land. Uh, the land was your status in community. The land was what was passed down to you from your father and passed down from the father before that. It, it was your standing. It was your livelihood. It was your life. I still have friends that farm family farms, and they can't even think about divesting the family farm that's been preserved for hundreds of years. And he said, that, that was this man's life. It was his standing. It was a reputation. And he said, I want you to liquidate all of that. So that's what the father did. Father sold off liquidation sale. Sold off a third of his land, a third of his property, a third of his cattle, a third of his assets. Converted it to cash and put it in his son's hand. And when his son took that money, he turned his back on his father and walked out. Not a thank you, not a see you later. He was out. I, I, I tell you what, I'm sure it was painful for the father to liquidate his life, but it was more painful for his father to be rejected by his own son because all the father wanted was a relationship with the son and the son could care less about him. This is a punk kid that could care less about his dad. So he gets his cash and he goes. He goes as far as he can get. Man, I'm going as far away from Israel as I can. This Jewish boy went into Gentile territory. Well, out where all the stuff happened. 
And he went to Vegas, man, or he went to LA. He went to wherever the place is where nobody talks about. He went to Sin City and he said, man, I'm going to live it up. I'm going to finally live my life. I got cash in my hand and it's burning a hole in my pocket and I'm going to live life. If dad said go right, I'm going left. If dad said don't do that, that's what I'm going to do in excess. If dad said do this, I'm going to do the total opposite. I'm going to live my own life, do my own thing, live in my own way. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. And he did. He spent his money on luxury hotels and on fast cars and wild friends and strip clubs and prostitutes and everything he could get his hand on drugs and alcohol, everything he could put in his body, everything he could experience in sensuality and sexuality. He gave, he gave himself in reckless abandon. He said that he lived a reckless life, reckless. And then all of a sudden a famine comes. Famine, that, that in today's language would be an economic downturn, all right? The, the, the stock market starts crashing, buildings start folding, I mean, businesses start folding up. All of a sudden, this guy, uh, he's starting to run out of money, and all, and all the friends that were hanging around him go, man, you're cool, you're the man. They're like, poof, they're gone. They vanished. They're on to suck the life out of some other guy. And he, he's left with nothing. I mean, he, in this downturn, he doesn't have any money left, so he starts pawning off all the stuff that he bought. He's pawning off uh, his flat screen. He's pawning off his video games. He's pawning off uh, you know, all the assets he's got. He's dropping as fast as he can just to eat. Before long, he finds himself, he doesn't have any shoes. He doesn't have much clothes at all. He's strung out. He's on drugs. He's lost weight. He's got bags under his eyes. He's got no place to go. He smells like the gutter. He's sleeping on the street. He's got nothing, absolutely nothing. And the only person that will give him a job is a Gentile pig farmer. And he can slop the pigs, which was just the lowest you could get a Gentile boy because pigs were unclean, but for him to slop the pigs and even to think that what the pigs were eating looked good. He had hit rock bottom. It says no one gave him anything. He had hit rock bottom. And I love what it says. It says when he finally hit rock bottom, verse 17, when he came to himself. He had this moment of clarity. Like it's all of a sudden like the fog lifted and he realized what he had done. He realized how he treated his dad. He realized how he'd wasted his inheritance. This was it, man. His inheritance was all he would have to live on the rest of his life. He wasted it. It's all gone. And in this moment of clarity, he comes to himself and he thinks, you know what? My dad's hired workmen, contract laborers get paid better than I get paid. They eat better than I'm eating right now. And he said, here's, here's what I'll do. I will go back to my father and I'll say, Father, I am no longer worthy. I have sinned against heaven against you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. I tell you what, just consider me. Hire me on as one of your contract guys. It wasn't the servants. The servants lived on property. The servants lived with the family. He said, I don't even deserve that. I don't even deserve to live on the property. If you'll just consider me one of your contract guys and let me come in and go out on the bus with the rest of them. I'll work hard every day and I'll try to pay you back. I'll try to make things right. So we headed home. This weak, strung out, skinny, worn, smell like the street kid started walking home. No shoes on his feet. Every step was painful. And his dad is out one day looking over the fields, looking over his workers, 
Every day he would go out and he would say, God, it's the day of the day. God, I hope he's alive. God, I hope my son is okay. God, just protect him. God, just bring him, bring him home. Every day he would scan the horizon. He would look for his son, but never saw him. But this day was different. This day he thought he saw somebody coming down the road and he caught his attention. He's looking. He's waiting and he starts to notice this guy's gait. He starts to know he's by himself. He starts to notice he looks skinny and, he, and it all of a sudden hits him that it's his son. And you know what this father does? When he notices his son is coming, this father runs. He runs. Now listen, old men don't run. All right, Even still today, old men should not run. All right? Uh, it's just not good. We got bad knees. We got bad backs. We got all kinds of issues. We should not run, all right? And especially back then, old men didn't run because if they were a, a landowner, if they were a man of respect, they would have, you know, would have a robe on. And so in order to run, you would have to gird up your loin. You would have to pull up your robe to free your legs to run. And nobody wants to see that, right? Nobody wants to see that. It's kind of like the guy that runs in my neighborhood without a shirt on. Nobody wants to see that. Anyway, back to the story. And, and so this guy, but this father, he doesn't care what people say. He girds, he runs to full sprint to his son and he sees his father running, running. And, he, and he, he's, he's overwhelmed and his father just literally says he fell on his neck and he began to kiss him. And it doesn't just say he kissed him once. It means that he kissed him over and over and over and over and over with tears flowing down his face and he's hugging him. He's saying, my boy, my boy, my boy, oh God. God, thank you. Thank you for bringing it back. The son kind of pushes it back. He says, all right, I got a speech. <laughs> I start off with a bad speech. Let me make a good one. All right, here it is. Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worried to be called your son. And then the father just cuts him off. He's going to have none of that. He starts barking out orders. He said, all right, I, I need a robe on this boy. Let's clothe him, the best robe in the house. Maybe he took off his own robe. And clothed him with it. He said, I need shoes on his feet because only slaves wore, were, went without shoes. Only slaves went barefoot. But my son is going to have shoes on his feet. And then put a ring on his finger, that signet ring that you would press into wax that would make decisions and cut deals. It would be like him saying, let's go to the bank and putting a signature on our, on our accounts. What was he doing? He was, he was reinstating him as a son with full rights and full privileges. He wasn't going to wait till he kind of worked it out. He wasn't going to say, well, we'll give you six month probation and then we'll see how it goes. He's not going to say, well, let's work out a restitution deal. None of that. He said full reinstatement, just as if he had never left. Just as if he had never left. And then he said, we're going to party. Man, we're going to kill that fatted calf. We're going to have us a barbecue. We're going to get it in the pit. We're going to have a band. We're going to invite everybody from the community. We're going to celebrate because my son, who I thought was gone, is still alive. My son that I thought was dead is here with me. So they began to celebrate. That's the end of Act One. The curtain comes down. You know, it's really a great story because it's got the background, it's got the, the conflict, it's got this beautiful resolution at the end. It's a picture of God's grace and God's mercy. I mean, this would be the great ending of a wonderful story. But that's not the end of the story. That's just the end of Act 1. 
you're probably listening to this thing and, wow, how much better could it get? I mean, you know, this, this is such a great act one. How could act two be any better? So the curtain comes up into act two. And in that scene that you see the focus now on the older brother. The older brother is out in the field. He's working. He's been working hard ever since his younger brother left. He's been doing double duty. He's working hard in the fields and he comes back home and all of a sudden he starts hearing all this commotion. He starts hearing crowds of people and laughing and singing and dancing and the band is playing and he's completely out of the loop as to what's going on. So he grabs one of the servants and says, what's happening at home? And he said, well, haven't you heard? No, I haven't heard anything. Your younger brother, he's returned safe and sound and your father's so in this great celebration, he's killed the fatted calf. And it said, I want you to notice this. I want you to see it in your Bible. Look at verse 28. His response is this, but he was angry and refused to go in. The older brother's response to what's happening here is primarily anger. He's mad at his younger brother. Man, that guy's back. It's a lot better when he was gone. This is the, this is the punk kid that, that humiliated my father, that wasted a third of our inheritance. This is a guy that did everything wrong. I wish he would have stayed gone. But then notice that he's also mad at his father. He's mad at his own father. If you look at verse uh, 29, uh, somebody, somebody goes in and tells the father, hey, you know, your, your older son's outside. He's really fuming. He's really upset. And he's refusing to come in. So the father leaves the party and he goes outside. And he reaches out to his his older son. And his older son will have none of it. Look at verse 29. He says, look. And in other words, it's almost like, look here. It's like the oldest picture, the older son pushing his finger in his dad's chest. And saying, look here. I, I, I want you to know something. I have served you my whole life. I have done everything you asked. Every single thing. And you wouldn't even give me a little goat to go out and party with my friends. And then here comes this punk son of yours that wastes a third of your, your land and a third of your inheritance on, on prostitutes. And you bring a, you celebrate a big party for him? You kill the fatted calf? And you say, well, what's the big deal about a fatted calf? Well, back in those days, meat was hard to come by. So you didn't, have, you didn't have a fatted calf slaughtered every other weekend. This wasn't just an annual barbecue. This, was, this would be saved for the most important celebrations, maybe a wedding or something like that. That was the most expensive thing you could do. This is costing the father a lot of cash. And he said, you're going to spend our money on him I'm the one that deserves it. I'm the one that earned it. I'm the one that served. Notice the language he used, a servant to master. I I earned it. I work hard for you. I deserve it. That whole, it, it was never even about love for his dad either. It was all about working and rules and earning. And the father could have, could have set him down, too. He said, you don't talk to me that way. Listen, this is my, as long as I'm alive, this all belongs to me, and I'll do whatever I want to, and why don't you just get out of here? Nobody wants, uh, nobody wants you in this party anyway with that kind of attitude. Just go. I mean, that's probably what I would have done. Not probably a good thing. But he doesn't. Notice how he treats his older boy. He says, my son. Look, I mean, he's so tender. He said, my son. 
I'm always with you. And all that I have is going to you. But it's fitting that your brother that was lost is found. It's fitting we celebrate. So come on. Come on. Take my hand. Let's go in together. Come on. Let's go. And that is how the story ends. It's not resolved. It, it, we're left wondering, okay, is the brother going to take his father's hand and go into the celebration? Does the family get rec- reconciled? Or, is, or does, the, does the brother walk away? Is there, is there still angst between? We don't know. This, this cliffhanger, all right, he is completely unresolved. What was in act one was this beautiful resolution, and now in act two, it's like dissonance. There's no resolution to this story. Jesus just leaves it hanging with the father's hand out to the older son. And we're left to wonder what happens. Now, why did Jesus do that? Why did he leave it hanging? And let let me give you a couple of things I think Jesus is teaching us in this story. All right? You can jot these things down. The first thing is this. Jesus is teaching us in this story that God is better than you think. That he is, he said, if you want to know what God is like, let me tell you what God is like. He is a father. For some people, the, a father image is not a good image. For you, your father may have been uh, abusive toward you, or maybe he was hard to please. Maybe he was that guy you couldn't ever be good enough in sport, couldn't make high enough grades, you couldn't be successful enough. You're always chasing, trying to get your father's approval. Maybe your father was harsh or demanding or indifferent or absent. But he said, let me tell you what, what God is like. God is like a father, and he's not just like the father you've known. He's, he's the greatest father. In fact, Jesus' favorite name for uh, God was my father. My father this, my father that. There's only one place that Jesus didn't call God his father, and I'll get to that in a minute. He said, when you pray, pray our father. So what he's saying is this, your father, that God is a father that, that runs after you. God is a father that extends his hand to you. God is a father that cares about you. Listen, in this story, the father cared more about the relationship with the sons than the sons cared about the relationship with their father. And that's true with us. He cares more about a relationship with you than you care about him. That's what God's like. He said, that's the picture of God. The second thing that Jesus does in this story is he tells us about ourselves. And, he's, and basically this is it, your sin is worse than you think. He's painting a picture not only who God is in the story, but what sin is like in this story. In act one, the sin is pretty obvious, right? In act one, this guy goes loco, right? And he, he, just, he just goes off and does everything wrong. I mean, it's not hard to find the sin in act one, oh, he's prostitutes, drunkenness, partying, wastefulness, uh, I mean, arrogance. You just, you can pick it all over that story. It's easy to spot the sin. It's external. It's obvious. It's egregious, right? But when you get to Acts two or the act two, you've got a, you've got sin there too. You've got an older son who's Maybe it's a little harder to pick out because he's good and he is obedient and he does what's right, and yet he's distant from the father. Why? It goes to his motive. Because this son did what was good, not out of gratitude and love and relationship with his father. 
He just did it to get something from his father. He did good to get. See, both sons really didn't care about their father. Both sons were just wanted his stuff. One did it by rebelling, one did it by earning it, but either rebelling or earning it, they only wanted his stuff. They didn't care about a relationship with their father. And in so doing, what Jesus is doing, he's painting a picture of what the world says about happiness. You see, the world says there are two ways to, to be happy. One happy is this, be a rule breaker. That is, live as you please. Live as you please. Just go party and forget, throw off restraint, be your own person and go for the gusto and, and do whatever you want, sleep with whoever you want, act whatever you want, do whatever you want, pump whatever you want into your body. It doesn't matter. It just, just live your own life. Be a rule breaker and you'll be happy. And the other side of that coin says, be a rule follower. Be good, be moral, be religious, work hard. And in so doing, you will earn blessing and you will earn approval and you will earn acceptance and then you will be happy. And what Jesus is saying is both rule breakers and rule followers are missing it. Both of them don't know the Father. Both of them are alienated from the Father. Both of them break the Father's heart and both of them are wrong. And what precipitated this story is found in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. When Luke 15, 1 and 2, you back up to there, you see why Jesus is telling this story the way he, he does. Because he's there, and, and these tax collectors and sinners are coming and hanging out with Jesus, and they're wanting to know about God, and they're repenting and they're turning to God. And then the Pharisees show up, the religious types, and they're like, you know, who, who, who is this guy that lets these people hang around him? These riffraff. And they get angry with Jesus because he loves sinners. Because they think they're so much better. And he says, you know what? I got a story about two brothers. And obviously, the younger brother is supposed to represent these tax collectors and sinners that have gone way down a dangerous, destructive road, but are coming back. And obviously, the older brother, the do-gooder in the family that's angry, is supposed to relate to the Pharisees and who they are. And what Jesus is basically saying here is, both of you, are lost. Both of you don't have the heart of your father. Both of you are alienated. Really, in this story, Jesus is trying to get us to choose which one we are. In this parable, we have to choose. Some, for some of you here, you'd say, you know, I'm definitely the rule breaker. Man, I've lived on the wild side. If, I, if we put an open mic here and we confessed all the stuff I've done, I'd shock the world. I feel dirty, I feel alienated, I feel far from God, I've done everything that could possibly be done and I'm miserable on the inside. And what Jesus would say to you is, listen, if that's the road that you've been on, I want you to know where that road leads. It leads to a pig pen and it leads to the pain and it leads to suffering and hardship. But if you will come to your senses and turn back to your father, you will find him falling on your neck and kissing you and restoring you back. All you gotta do is turn to him. Some of you identify with the older brother, the rule follower. And if you're a rule follower, that's pretty obvious too, because you always did the right thing. You were always in church. You always uh, studied for your class. You never skipped class. You were always following all the rules. You were a people pleaser. In fact, you felt good about yourself when you were pleasing other people. You felt good about yourself when you made good grades. You felt good about yourself when you followed all the rules. 
And somehow you've got in your mind that, uh, uh, that if I just do all the right things, that God is going to owe me and God's going to bless me if I just do everything right. You know, there's some people that are in church and they've never left the church, but they left the Father a long time ago. Their heart is not for God in relationship. They're just going to church, being dutiful going to committee and just serving and doing whatever, doing all the things you're supposed to do. But in your heart, you know the telltale sign of of an older brother? The telltale sign is you're angry. Older brothers are angry a lot. They're angry at other people that mess up. They, They wish they'd get their act together and start doing the right thing. So they're angry all the time. Very little compassion. And they're also angry at God because they'll say things like this in their own heart. They won't say this out loud because they know that's not right. But in their own mind, they're saying, God, I have served you and I have read my Bible and I have said my prayers and I have done all these things all my life. And God, I ask you to do something and you don't do it. You don't answer my prayer. You owe me. I deserve this. I earned I'm mad at you, God, because look at my life. You know you're an older brother. When that's in your heart, you know you're an older brother when you look with a judgmental eye on other people. You know you're an older brother. When you're not happy that people far from God come to Christ, you know you're an older brother when you don't even have a heart of the Father to pursue them. And what Jesus is saying is rule breakers are far from God, and even rule keepers are far from God. Both of them need the same thing, and that's grace. They both need grace. And that's really the third point that I want to give to you, and that is this, that God's grace is greater than you think. See, for the older brother, salvation is like this. You do good, you're in. You do bad, you're out. That's the older brother idea of salvation. The younger brother's idea of salvation is you be open-minded and free-spirited and you're in, and you're judgmental and bigoted, you're out. But Jesus's idea of salvation is this. It's neither one. Jesus is saying this. If you're broken over your sin and realize you have nothing to offer God and you turn in repentance, you're in. And if you think you've earned any of it, you're out. See, God's grace is for lawbreakers and law keepers, rule breakers and rule keepers. We all sin and we fall short of the glory of God. And we cannot earn God's grace by being good and we do not deserve God's grace because we're bad, we receive it as a gift. God extends his grace to us in Christ. And what Jesus did shows us God's grace. You know, in the ancient world, if a younger brother were to twist off and and do what this guy did in the story, it would be the older brother's responsibility to go make it right. The older brother would go to the father and say, Father, I understand what my younger brother has done. It's wrong. It's terrible. He's dishonored you. He's dishonored heaven. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave, and at my own expense, even to my own life, I'm going to go find him, and I'm going to bring him back. 
so that our family is together and, and your name is honored. I will do this for you, Father. Sad thing is the kid in this story didn't have an older brother that cared about him. He let him go. But we have an older brother that cares about us. And his name is Jesus. And when Jesus left heaven and he came to earth, he was coming on a rescue mission. He was coming after the younger brothers that rebel, the younger brothers that run from the Father, the younger brothers that only care for themselves. He was running after you and me. And on the cross, Jesus was paying for our sin. He was our older brother. And he was rejected so that we could be accepted. He was punished so that we could be forgiven. He was stripped of his honor so that we could be wrapped in honor. He laid down his authority so that we could be called sons of God. He was our older brother chasing after us to restore us back to the Father. You see, Jesus died for rule breakers and for rule keepers. We both need grace. We both need the Father. Not just his stuff. We need him. So which one are you? Today, which one are you?